dot the second principle, the only foolish question will be the unasked question. And I want you to feel free at any time to raise a question. Sometimes I am trying to set forth something in an overview, and then at the end of it we will open it up for questions. Now one of the questions that was directed to me is, okay, suppose I get into the Word and I continue to move and we're going for six years, and then the bottom drops out. Now what do I do with respect to my attitude? There are two things to keep in mind in terms of life. One is attitude. The other is action. This deals with your behavior. This deals with your mentality. And the age-old problem is, where do you begin? Well, you begin where you are. And if your problem is attitude, then the best thing to do is to change your behavior. And if your problem is behavior, then the best thing to do is to change your attitude. And what happens is, the moment you change your behavior, then your attitude changes. There are many times that I get up in the morning for my study of the Word, when perfectly, be perfectly honest with you, I do not feel like studying the Word. I couldn't objectively say my attitude right now is the attitude of a newborn babe. But my responsibility is clear and I commit myself to obedience and I get into the Word and the moment I do, my attitude changes. Or sometimes my attitude is good but the behavioral pattern is inconsistent. Then what I've discovered is I have to begin here and proceed to translate this in terms of my behavior. It may mean, for example, changing my approach. It may mean changing the time or the place or all kinds of things that go in to making it a good or a mediocre experience. Sometimes, to be honest with you, I'm weary. That's why I took off this past week. You have this experience? You, know, you wake up in the morning and, bleh, you know, you got a bad case of the blots. Well, you know, I don't feel particularly spiritual under these conditions. And so sometimes I say to a man, look, you don't need to get into the Word. You need to go to bed. Ooh, that's heresy. Right, Hendrick's heresy. Try it. The guy goes to the bed and he gets himself a good night's sleep and he gets up next morning, man, I'm ready to go. You know what I do on my vacations? I take off. You can't get me for trying. You couldn't get me to preach or teach, friend, if you were dying. I just absolutely will not do it. I go to Colorado. That's my favorite place. And I rent a Jeep and my family, and we go up in the high country, and man, I make a fool out of myself. I run over this thing, tearing around there, boy. I climb those mountains till I'm half dead. I fall across the bed at night from sheer exhaustion, never take my clothes off, just go out. <laughs> Ten hours later, wake up, where am I? Get on a horse, ride it backwards, <laughs> knock myself out. And about a week into that, I begin to get a hankering for books. Ooh. And then I resist it. <laughs> and I go about another half a week and, oh, I got to get a book. And I can't get one because I didn't even take one. In about two weeks, man, I am so ready to come back and hit it. And I think the problem with some of you, to be perfectly frank with you, is that you are so committed, you are so sincere, you are so involved that you're blowing yourself out of the saddle just by failing to develop some balance in your life. And maybe today you don't need this intensive Bible study. You need a good first-class rest. You need to get out of here. Get away from people. People are tremendously exhausting. You discovered that? Oh, I love people, but woo! If I see another one, I'll scream! There's always another one. Hey, Howie, what would you do with that? 
Drop that. <laughs> you know, all the time you're lashing yourself because here I am supposed to be great big navigator that I am. You know, I don't always feel on top. And I'll tell you why you don't, because that's what makes you a dependent person. And that's what makes you a real person. So that when you talk to people, you don't talk to them out of your fakery. You talk to them out of your reality. And the guy says, man, what happens when, when I really get turned on and then boom, it all crashes. Say, man, I know what you're talking about. That just happened to me last week. See, now you're for real. You don't minister, my friend, on the basis of your strengths. You minister often on the basis of your weaknesses. Because that's why God allows you to fail. And when thou art converted, he said to Peter, strengthen thy brethren. You want a good study? Chase through the epistles of Peter. Everything you stereotype Peter for in the Gospels is exactly the opposite of what you find in 1 Peter. Patience. That's just what I think of Peter. Right? <laughs> well, not exactly. That's what he talks about. Submission. Man, I think of him as the last guy in the world to be submitted. That's what he talks about. We'll look at that later. Is this helpful to you? Okay. Any other questions? All right. Now, let me give you an overview of inductive procedure. That is how to study the Bible. And I wish we had a whole series on this alone, but we don't. But I'll uh, whet your appetite, give you some books, and hopefully some motivation. There are three major steps in inductive Bible study. That is, coming to the Word for yourself on a first-hand basis. First step is the step of observation. Here you ask and answer the question, what do I see? And that's where all Bible study begins. First-hand observation. Why is he a better Bible student than you are? Very simple. He can see more. It's all in the text. The question is, can you see it? The second step is interpretation. And this is where some of us were talking between the breaks, that oftentimes the nav is very weak. I'll show you where your strength is and your greatest asset becomes your greatest liability. What you really need to learn to do is how to interpret the Word of God accurately so that when you apply it, you are applying it accurately. Because if your interpretation is erroneous, your application will be erroneous. And what we got today is a lot of people running around with applications. They're like elephants that are attached to an exegetical thread. Well, it's not based on what that text says. And that's dangerous. That's what develops heresy. Every cult is based upon this. The false interpretation of the passage. And I'll give you a couple things that hopefully will help. Here's where you ask and ask, answer the question, what does it mean? Now, not to you, but to the man who wrote it. When you come to Leviticus... And a man brings an offering and he puts his hand on that little lamb and the first thing you do is to make a heading for Christ. And I said, wait a minute. How in the world can you apply it to Jesus Christ? What did it mean to that Israelite when he brought his lamb and put his hand on it? And when I find out what it meant to him, then believe me, it's going to give me a tremendous understanding as to what it means in terms of of Jesus Christ. All right, the third step, and the one that the navs are often beautifully strong on, is application. And that is, how does it work? And I tell my students at the seminary, very frankly, you know what you need to do, my friend? You've got the truth coming out your ears. Now what you need to do is to go out and get yourself involved with some navigator who will tell you how to take this stuff and put it into your life. And by the way, you may be able to be of help to him because you may be able to teach him more of what it means. And he'll be of help to you 
to teach you how to apply it. So here's again where your strength becomes your weakness. Now, too much Bible study begins and ends in the wrong place. It begins with interpretation and it ends there. Guy opens the Bible says, what does this mean? How in the world do you know what it means? You don't even know what it says. And I find Bible conference ministry about 80% of the questions people ask me could be answered by saying, would you please read the verse before or the verse after or would you please read the passage? Amazing how much this light the Scripture throws upon the Scripture. <laughs> so it doesn't begin there and it certainly doesn't end there. I say observation plus interpretation without application is abortion. the total process. Now let me give you a couple things that I hope will be of help to you. Let's look first of all at observation. Here's where you ask and answer the question, what do I see? And when the psalmist prayed, open thou mine eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of thy law, he was praying for the powers of observation. He was asking the Spirit of God to tear the bandages from his eyes that he might see with sight and spiritual insight. Now, there are two steps to observation I'd like to share with you just briefly. First of all, you're going to have to learn to read. I don't mean to insult you. I discover college and university students can do everything except read, write, and think. <laughs> I said to some students some time ago, look, friend, if you can't read, write, or think, what can you do? And one wag hollered out, watch television! <laughs> Eleven times in the Gospels, Jesus Christ said to the most well-read people of his time, have you never read... Of course they read. They spent all of their life reading. But you can read and not interact with what you read. And I want to suggest a book for you that could change the course of your Bible study. Hear me carefully. There is a direct correlation between your ability to read and your ability to see. You improve your ability to read and you will improve your ability to see. The book is by Mortimer Adler, A-D-L-E-R, and Mark Van Doren, V-A-N-D-O-R-E-N. Get it in a paperback. Entitled, How to Read a Book. And that will give you more help in terms of reading than anything I can recommend. That changed the whole course of my life and ministry. Graduated from high school, I had a scholarship to Northwestern University, which if I made good on it, would go through their med program, which I was planning to go into. And just before I went to college, the Lord called me into the ministry, and I decided to go to Wheaton, which I felt would equip me best for the ministry. And when I got to Wheaton, I took a test, an English test, and landed in the lowest section, having just received an English award from high school. You know, that, that does something for you. And furthermore, I get at the end of the first six weeks, and I got three blue slips in my box, which means you're flunking three courses. And I never went to a football game. I never went to a social event. All I did was study. And you flunk in three courses. That does something for you. <laughs> in addition to that, my unregenerate father said to me, the last thing on the railroad station in Philadelphia, okay, son, so you called it a ministry. Now don't come home. Which had a reason behind it, because one of our relatives, you know, made the great big splash of, oh, going into the ministry, whole family gives them a party, you know, they're sending away, six weeks later he's out. Don't come home. Here I am standing under a street light with three blue slips in my hand, spending all of my time studying, flunking three courses, and my father's words, don't come home. That does something for you. 
But you know, the greatest thing about being put in the lowest section was that we got the best professor I've ever had in my life. A man who really knew how to teach. And one day I went in to see him. I said, Dr. King, I, man, you know, this is the situation. I said, it's simple, Holly. You don't know how to study. He was right. I never cracked a book in high school. Came out with honors. And here I was in a school where they expected you to study. See, we, we don't think anything of asking our students to read a book before the next hour. They don't think much of it either, but... <laughs> <laughs> Where I whoop, you got to read this thing for the next hour, right? Just think you got 24 hours before you're on. Boom. <laughs> and Dr. King said to me, son, I want you to buy a book. And I want you to read it. Come in and we'll discuss it. Boy, he changed the whole course of my life in ministry. It's this book. It's in an updated, it's a much better form now than it was when I read it. Let me give you just a couple suggestions to put under this thing. First of all, you're going to have to learn to read the Bible as for the first time. Now, that's a discipline. Tremendous discipline. Because the moment I say to you, okay, I want you to read uh, John 3. All right, Pop, got that one. Yeah, that's your problem. Familiarity not only breeds contempt, it breeds ignorance. My closest friends is a guy who cracked the fifth tone of a language. This guy couldn't say one sentence without stuttering hopelessly. It took him almost two years to raise support to go to the mission field. The greatest translator in modern generation. It's already into his fourth full translation, a phenomenon in itself. When I visited him some time ago in the mission field, he told me of his experience of translating the gospel of Mark into the language of these people. And he had his informant sitting in front of him. And the moment he got to that verse, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost, the guy took off. And he took off after him, but he couldn't find him. It took him a day and a half to find him. And when he finally found him, he found him going from hut to hut. And when he came in, he said, look, don't bother me, I'm busy. And he'd go into each hut and he'd get everybody together and he'd sit down and he'd say, hey, I got a message from God. Son of man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. No question about the fact we're lost. We didn't know that God did something about it. And after you get through presenting it to them, he run to the next side. Don't bother me. You know, with the translator after him saying, look, we've got to get the rest of the translation. Forget it. <laughs> and he said, all of a sudden it dawned on me. Oh, God, give me that kind of a passion. My wife led... One of our neighbors to Jesus Christ a few years ago across the street and a dear lady come over. She'd read the, the, the book, read the book of Leviticus and she'd run over and she'd say, Hey, Gene, do you think I ought to eat pork? Ah, oh, beautiful. See, now I can come up with all of the reasons why it's no problem. <laughs> See, but here's somebody so fresh, not even sophisticated enough to know the answers to all of this stuff. And God says, don't eat pork. And she runs across the street and says, you really think I should stop eating pork? See, that's what you got gotten over. you got 27 rationalizations for why you do what God says don't do. That's another age. <laughs> Second, learn to read as a love letter. I ought to grab some of you. Some of you need to learn to read those again. I did all of my correspondence by courtship. Five years. Most fantastic woman you have ever seen. And she'd write to me in Philadelphia, and I'd write to her in Wheaton. Boy, I get the thing out. You know what I did? I get the letter out, and I said, well, gee whiz, i got to read something from Jean today. Keeping fellowship. Check the book. I read a paragraph. And I went to my little black book and I checked. Red letter from Jean. <laughs> Isn't that what you did yours? 
Oh, my shattered nerves. I had to read that thing, you know, before the professor showed up for class, sometimes during it. <laughs> Instead of waiting long lines in the dining hall, man, I read it there. Boy, I read it every time I got an opportunity before I go to bed. Read it again. Precipitates. Wonderful dream. Fabulous. Read it. Read it. Why? Because you're in love with the author. That's what he said. I have not seen nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for home. For them that loved him. You falling in love more with Jesus Christ? That's the name of the game. Learn to read. The second thing you're going to have to learn to do is to learn what to look for. So I want to give you something that will help you. It's real simple. You all begin with WH, so it's easy to remember. See, my closest friend is an otologist. Works on the ear. I kid him about being a specialist in the right ear. Got a problem in the left one? Forget it. You'll have to go somewhere else. So, specialized he is. Ear, nose, throat, man. Boy. Brilliant. I go to see him. He says, how are you opening your mouth? I open my mouth. He takes one look at it just like that says, I got it. I got it. <laughs> now, I've been looking in that sad thing for years. <laughs> I can't see a thing. You know why? He knows what he's looking for. My favorite time, pastime is watching surgery. Watching a, a dissection of a human body. I just love to spend hours with a pathologist. Some time ago, my closest friend in Philly had one that just died. So he said, hey, Cowie, come on in. I got a fresh one. <laughs> so, man, he, he started at the head and went to the toes all the way through the sash about falling in the middle of the body. How she didn't die of this? He said, really? How do you know? Well, you know. You know. Well, how? And he said, well, if she had died of this, it would be this kind of color or it would be swollen in this way. And all the way we keep going. Through. Oh, there it is. There it is. You're where? I'm looking all over. I think there's a big sign on. She died here. <laughs> See, he knows the difference between normal and abnormal tissue. He knows what he's looking for. And the reason a good Bible student can come to the Word of God and read it and get so much out of it is that he knows what he's looking for. So you've got to sensitize yourself to find out what you're looking for. Well, this is what you're looking for. First of all, who? That is, who are the personalities? Who are the people? What did these people say? Lord, it's good for us to be here. That's a profound statement on the Mount of Transfiguration by a guy, you see, who opened his mouth and put his foot in it. Wonder why he couldn't walk. The hoof and mouth disease. Who said it? You know who said it. Peter said it. Who else? Don't stand there. Say something. That's his motto. <laughs> and he, he really comes up with some lulus. Or what is said about these people? Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Hey, some of you ought to identify with that. You got a famous brother or father or something else? Oh, that's a great curse. You meet my daughter someday. Don't ever say, oh, you're Howard Hendricks' daughter, because she'll come right back at you and say, no, Howard Hendricks is my father. <laughs> I love it. Imagine having that label, Simon. Let me, who? Peter. Whew. What a designation. Second one, what? What's happening? Is this a parable? If so, what's the point? Is this a miracle? What's happening? Is this an epistle and an argument? Then what's the big idea? Third question, where? Where is this taking place? And by the way, don't take anything for granted. I was teaching a class in Fort Worth for professional people. I had a woman in a class with two, HP, two PhD degrees and a Rhodes Scholar who right in the middle of the study in the Gospel of John said, well, what part of South America is this taking place in? And, Lady, would you mind repeating that question? That's exactly what she's asking. 
See, the Bible is a blind spot in the culture of millions of otherwise intelligent people. So take nothing for granted, you'll seldom be disappointed. That's why you can't study the Bible without an atlas, without a map. Where? Next, when? What time is it? Early in the morning? What morning? Mark 1.35, And in the morning, rising a great while before day, Jesus went into a solitary place and there prayed. What morning? There are only 52 recorded days from the life of Jesus Christ in the Gospels. And in Mark chapter 1, you have the busiest recorded day, a day that was just crowded with a performance of miracle, with teaching, etc. Nobody except the person who has sustained a public ministry has any idea of the drain of people upon a person. And I read the next morning, after this busy day, rising a great while before day. See, the timing is crucial to the understanding of it. Next question is why? Why? Did the Spirit of God include this? Now, you know he has a purpose. You've got to find out why. Why did he include it here? Why does it occur in Luke, but not in Matthew, Mark, and John? There's a reason. Not just that it was a favorite story of Luke's. You know, he's running out of material. <laughs> Let's stick it in here. No. Nah. Sixth question, wherefore? That is, so what? What difference would it make in my home as a husband if I were to apply that? Husband, love your wives. And a guy in the Cowboys that I led to Christ, boy, that has the most beautiful experience with this type of thing. Sent him out to Thousand Oaks, Oaks to study the book of Ephesians. He said, what is it? Ephesians, spell it. He said, where is it? It's in the New Testament. I said, have you found Matthew? Yeah, I found that one. I said, okay, go to Matthew and go right. <laughs> You'll run into it. So he goes out there, man, he comes across this verse, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. He came back, he says, man, what a wipeout. That's a wipeout for you, gentlemen. You try that one on for size? I say, my, my, my wife isn't lovely. Well, great. Love your wife. If they're lovely. Now what it says. How has Christ loved the church? Ooh. Now you know what I like about this? I like this. This is not the place to end. I'll give you more. I'll clue you. But this is a good place to begin with somebody you're trying to sell on getting into the Word. I got on a 747 in Dallas on my way to San Francisco. Would you believe there were eight passengers on the plane and 12 stewardesses? <laughs> it, was a, it was something. So, you know, they didn't have too much to do. And one of them came by, sat down next to me. I engaged her in conversation. And uh, by what she said, she sort of gave me some clues she might be a believer. I said, are you a believer? She said, I certainly am. Are you? I said, right. I said, when did you come to know Christ? She said, on this flight. I said, really, how'd that happen? She said, after Expo 72, a crowd of kids got on this plane and they led me to Jesus Christ. I said, man, that's fantastic. I said, Dave, do you have a Bible study program? Well, she said, I read it. Did you study it? No, I don't think you call it study. I said, how come? I don't know how. Would you like to learn how? Yeah. You got some time? Specialize in it. <laughs> So I pulled out one of those sickness bags. I've often wondered what those things are for. <laughs> and I got WH and ran down the thing, put these things. I said, you like to try it on for size? She said, yeah. I said, okay. Here's my Bible. I'll open the thing up. We turn to a passage in the Gospel by Mark. I said, let's see if we can find some answers to these questions. Well, by the time she got, you know, somewhere over San Francisco, I mean, she was higher than a kite. You know why? <laughs> Just wanted to see if you were with us today. <laughs> you know why? Because we overcame one of those serious hurdles, and that is the average person is quite convinced you can study the Bible, but not me. 
After all, I ought to be able to study the Bible. I'm a professor in a seminary. You know, little old navigator me. And then when you get somebody under you, you see as the disciple says, well, you're here, navigator. Whoo! <laughs> so you can, because that's, that's your bag. That's, that's your specialty. But me, you. Prove it. Let's go into a passage. Now, by the way, when he starts giving this stuff, see, that we got so excited, we had five of the stewardesses around us while she was sharing to me what she was finding in this passage. Know what to look for by asking the right questions. Okay, the second area is interpretation. And I want to give you five determinants. And these all begin with C so that this ought to be easy for you to remember. Here we ask and ask, answer the question, what does it mean? And there are five things that help you come up with meaning. First of all, content. And that's why you chase those words down. That's why you come to grips with that grammar and wrestle with that argument. It's why you look at other translations. Find out, what does this thing mean? Here I'm standing in the author's shoes. Find out what did he mean when he said this. Second thing, context. That's what goes before and what follows. And by the way, whenever you're lost in a passage and you don't know the meaning, climb a contextual tree and it'll give you perspective. Oftentimes I'm working in a passage and I get down there so close to it I can't see it, so I just back off a little bit and say, okay, let's go back to see what was developing here. Ah. Oh. Hey, how about that? And I start following and I say, man, yeah, that's the beginning of something that continues. And that's why we're going to have the kind of Bible study we're going to talk about today. Third is comparison. Paul Stanley gave me a choice illustration this morning about Czechoslovakia. During a limited period of time when the government gave them freedom to put out one book a year, the first thing he told me they put out was the Bible. That would you expect... And then he said, asking the question, if you had a second book to put out, what would you put out? And he said, you know what they chose? A concordance. And I thought, man, beautiful. If I only had two things to take with me, any place I went, I would take a Bible and a concordance. Comparing Scripture with Scripture. The greatest commentary on the Scriptures is the Scripture. Third, the cultural, historical background. By the way, that's very important. A good illustration of this some time ago, ministering in San Francisco, I stayed in the home of a very lovely couple. He was an importer of exquisite oriental lace. And as we were going out the front door one night for the meeting, I commented on a, what to me was an attractive piece of lace on a little end table in the, in the hallway. Oh, he said, that's junk. I keep telling my wife to ship that stuff and she insists on putting that junk out. He said, when we come back, I'll show you the way to tell the difference between good lace and junk. So I never let him forget it. When we came back from the meeting, I said, hey, I need that education. Oh, yeah, 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 come on in here. So we went into his study, this beautiful desk, large, brilliant light over it, pulled out of his desk a massive piece of black velvet, threw it across that desk, and then took a, an exquisite piece of oriental lace and put it on there and gave me an education. He said, now I'll show you the difference. But remember, you can never tell junk from the real thing until you put it over against a dark background and place a bright light on it. And all of a sudden, I said to myself, you know, that's why the book of Ruth is so attractive. It took place in a cesspool of Israel's history. And the question raised, was anybody faithful? Here's the answer. It's like a brilliant gem in the middle of this lurid background. And you'll never understand the book of Ruth until you see it against its background. And it's a dark one with a bright light of culture. And by the way, this is one reason why people get all hung up over passages. 
Some guy says to me, you know, well, that's a little racy. <laughs> I say, really? You know what you've just told me? You told me that's a greater commentary on your mentality than it is on the mentality of the people who experience this. So what you're doing is taking perverted 20th century mentality and reading it back into the culture. That's unfair. Now, what you're trying to do is to recreate the culture out of which this came. What was it like to live in Corinth? And then when I come to study the letters to the church at Corinth, this throws tremendous light on what he's talking about. And also gives me a tremendous clue as to how to apply it in Dallas, in my generation. All right? The fifth and last determinant is what I'm calling consultation. And that is, go to secondary sources. Good commentary. Good Bible dictionary. Good book on archaeology. Now, I happen to believe that the man who can read and does not read is no better off than the man who cannot read at all. And I believe that the average Christian ought to have a good library. And this is one reason some of you were asking me in a break, you know, what are some values that you establish for your children? This is one. One thing you ought to be very jealous about is that your children can read and that they are exposed to literature. It's not an accident that three of my four children have majored either in literature or in a related area and who read extensively. Most of them can read faster than I can read because I paid a price for that. I did without a lot of junk in my home. But there's one thing in my home we've got wall to wall, it's books. We got books in every room, and a John, they're books. <laughs> Priorities. <laughs> I still remember my oldest son who's now a pre-med student, and uh, boy, oh boy, what a grim experience we had. He went to first grade, and he got one of these dear gals just out of a school of education who had what I call the happiness cult. And, uh, you know, the kid came home, he couldn't read. So I decided to go down and see her. And she said, well, Mr. Hendricks, you don't understand. The important thing is that he be happy. Well, great. At the end of the year, I discovered he was disgustingly happy, but he couldn't read. And I said to her, you know, madam, did it ever occur to you he might be happier if he knew how to read? I really don't think I'd ever, ever, ever entertained that idea. So it cost me $400 to put him in a remedial reading program. It's the best 400 bucks I've ever invested. To teach a kid how to read. Because most guys coming out of university can't read if their life depends upon it. This is a tremendous discipline. And once you learn how to read, then you expose your children to good literature. And you discuss it at the table instead of the church. With all of the problems of the Christians with which you infect your kids so that they have a jaundiced view of what the church is like. See, these are priorities too. Now, I came up, and I wish I had done this before, and I just picked it up as I left, but I came up with a basic Bible student's library that I'd like to make available to you. Uh, and somebody... Paul, can we get this thing run off someplace? Okay. And uh, it'll give you, you know, some basic stuff that costs about $100, the whole bag. And it'll give you a concordance, it'll give you an atlas, it'll give you a one-volume Bible commentary, give you something on the life of Christ, uh, survey of Israel's history, so forth, Bible dictionary. And you know what I do with these things? When I get a person turned on, you see, and the guy's coming hot, then I say, you know what you ought to do, bud? You got a hundred bucks? Well, a hundred bucks. Well, uh, maybe you better borrow a hundred. And uh, let's buy some books. Get the guy's shelf filled with some strategic books so that he's got something to use. Now, these are not crutches. These are tools. This is not a substitute for personal Bible study. This is a means of facilitating first-hand Bible study. So we'll try to get this thing run off for you. Okay? Now, third area is application. How does it work? Not does it work. What? how does it work? And I want to suggest four things for you. Number one, no. 
know two things. First of all, you've got to know the interpretation. As I mentioned earlier, if your interpretation is wrong, your application will be wrong. And this is how people get off into heresy, the cult, into extremes. You don't land in an extreme, my friend, if you really know the interpretation of a passage. And if you argue with these people, by the way, who are all hung up on these things, they never argue with you on the basis of the Scripture because they don't know the Scripture that well. And they can't support this from the Scripture. They argue with you on the basis of their experience. See, I had an experience once. Great, well, we better evaluate your experience on the basis of the Word of God because it could be an erroneous experience. See, that's why Christian life is not just an experience. Secondly, know yourself. And the interesting thing is the moment I say that to you, most of you immediately think of your negative because that's how you spend the bulk of your life, dumping on yourself. And by the way, knives are also infected with this disease because they are very sincere, conscientious, committed people. And when you get a person like that, you get a person who gets almost grossly introspective. And I say, how are you doing? Oh, boy. See, I can come to a NAV group and wipe them out with three statements. Oh, that's right. <laughs> See, all I got to ask you, how's your prayer life? Let's go home. <laughs> because I don't know anybody in here who's got a prayer life that doesn't need some improving. Well, when do you get on the top of that one? Well, you don't. And that's a key to working with people. So you're not spending all of your time dumping on yourself and shooting your energies on the wrong thing. Classic illustration to me was during my days in seminary. I had a dear gal, bless her heart. Every time I get near where this gal is incarcerated, I go to see her. What an experience. One of these overly conscientious girls, you know, comes out, oh boy, I'm going to live for Jesus. I'm going to bring this thing off. You know, until she became so neurotic. I used to go over to her apartment. She said, oh, Howie, I'm not praying enough. Oh, I said, really? How much are you praying? Well, about two hours a day. You know, I'm crawling under the rug. <laughs> Telling me you're not praying enough, you're praying two hours a day. <laughs> Finally, one day I said to her, when would... Telling me you're not praying enough, you're praying two hours a day. Huh? Finally, one day I said to her, when would you pray enough? I said, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, six hours, would that be enough? Well, he's better than I'm doing now. I said, what about 12? Well, then even more. I said, well, suppose you prayed 24 hours a day, would that be enough? Well, of course I couldn't do any more than that. <laughs> But if you, if you pray 24 hours a day, uh, you know, when would you read and study the Word? Well, I said, I wouldn't have any time for that. Well, let's divide it into 12 hours each. Suppose you spent 12 hours praying and 12 hours in the Word. Oh, that'd be better. <laughs> I said, well, when would you share your faith? Well, I said, I wouldn't have any time for that. Well, then we better get the three-eighths. You can see what I was doing with her. I kept pulling her down to show her the reductio ad absurdum of her position. Because that's where each one of us has to make the decisions. How are you going to spend your time? There's nobody that's spending all of the time. Now, she's in a mental institution. Her husband's in the ministry, has been for 20-some years. She will be there permanently unless God performs a miracle. This is where a lot of Christians get. They get under the pile, and the devil loves to push you under it. In fact, he'll push you down further. So you say, oh boy, I'm not making it. Say, that's right, that's what I told you. Went into the nabs, that's what would happen. That's right, devil. <laughs> the first thing you know, you find yourself believing the devil more than you believe in God. So there are two things that I'm asking. Number one, do you know what your liabilities are? Oh boy, do I ever. Name them. Oh, I got so many, I don't know where to begin. I'm not fussy, start where it's convenient. <laughs> Oh, I got so many. What's my need? More paper? <laughs> name them. You cannot right now name the three serious hassles of your life. I get news for you. You're probably not making progress. 
Next question I ask you is, what are your assets? My what? Your assets. <laughs> oh, Brother Hendricks, I'm a humble man. <laughs> well, with all humility, what are your assets? <laughs> it's pride. No, it's pride to tell me you don't have any. Because that's dumping on God. And that's very serious. These are the two questions I love to ask missionary candidates as I interview them. So what's your greatest asset? And they go all around the block on that one. Name it. So if you don't know what your greatest asset is, then you have no confidence. Because that's what develops your confidence. That God gave me that. Think of it! What confidence? My liabilities? These are the areas in which I need to trust God to develop them into areas of strength. Well, I could say a lot more on that, but uh, let's move on. Second, relate. Christianity is best understood as a series of relationships. And that's the whole meaning of the 2 Corinthians 5.17 passage. Therefore, if any man beware... Do you memorize scripture still in his outfit? In Christ. He's what? a new creation. All things are passing away. Behold, all things are becoming new. See, that's a dynamic process of growth in which Jesus Christ and the Word of God invade every area of your life. See, your thought life, your home life. See, are you a better husband because you're an ass? Or if I interviewed your wife, would she really say he was better before he got in it? Cal said to me the other day, my husband was a better husband when he was a pagan. And since he's become a Christian. Navigator said to me, I know the priority list. The word, the Lord, second, your family, third, your ministry. But it comes out, ministry, 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 more ministry. That's right. Because it's a failure to relate the Word of God to your life in every area. See, because what you're doing is impressing God that you're in the Word. You're impressing God that you have a prayer life. Get out of here, kids. I've got to pray. See, you're impressing God with all of the areas, but all of the time He's saying, but, you know, what about your relationship to your wife and kids? I was telling some folks before, the thing that wiped me out was that my kids would walk in the door, go right by me, Sometimes not even say hi and talk to my wife. Talk about a wipeout. You know, here I am, great big spiritual giant, you know, with all of these answers, and they go, <laughs> until one day I got sitting down and thinking to myself, you know, if I were my kids, you know what I would do? Just what they do. I would avoid me too. <laughs> and I wish my wife were here to teach it to you because she taught me everything I know. She taught me the relationships are far more important than a clean home. You learn that yet, women? So, well, I never had to love that. Learn that. You should see my home. <laughs> I have a beautiful home. But my wife taught me, sweetheart, I can always clean the floor again. But I can't build a relationship with that boy again. We get all hung up as the sad banana floor. Oh, spent all this time and look what you did. Kid goes plowing around. Look, mommy, what I drawed. See, that's a process of relating. And what happens, by the way, this might be very helpful for you, and this is the reason for coming to the Word consistently. Whenever you make an adjustment in one area, you are in danger of becoming maladjusted in other areas. See, I get all shook up that I, my prayer life is zero. And so I say, okay, boy, from now on, we're really going to get in prayer. You know, and my time in the Word goes out. And my time with my family goes out. Because it's like getting a shot. And you get a secondary reaction. It's a shot of penicillin to cure the disease, and you break out in hives. Well, that's too convicting. Let's move on. Number three. A third step in interpretation, I mean in application, is to meditate. 
And here's where some of you people have an awful lot to teach us. It's a good study, by the way, to take a concordance and chase the word meditate through. Its passages is the Joshua 1.8 passage, Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Jesus Christ saying, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. I got a guy right now. Said, One of the great problems with guys in this generation, and I wish you girls had come alive, I sometimes wonder if girls have ever really got a, a cell that's functioning properly in this area. And one of the greatest problems with a man in this generation is lust. And somehow people think, you know, because this guy comes to seminary, this is no problem. I have guys sit in my office, and honestly, if I said to the guy, look, if you'll cut your right arm, I'll get rid of your lust, he'd say, give me the knife. And this guy spent all of his time shacking up with the girls at the college and all of his time just absolutely blowing his life apart. Then he came to faith and now he settles down with one girl. And friend, that's no small adjustment. And a guy says to me, Prof, I've tried to memorize the scripture. I've tried to study the word of God. And all the time, all of the garbage comes through. My friends, I can remember from my days before Christ jokes to the exact word, dirty jokes. And I fight like crazy to memorize a passage of scripture that I would give anything to know. And it keeps evaporating. You know, so I have to review it. That's why you got your little packet to go over. And I review it, review it, go over and over and over again, there it's gone again. And the things I want to remember, I forget. And the things I want to forget, I remember like crazy. And I say to you, my friend, as I said to the student, young man, you're in the process of discovering the most exciting thing in all of your life, and that is you are going to have to recondition your mind. The reason you think lustfully is that's what you fed your mind and now you're going to have to feed it a new diet. And that's why I say to you, Mac, don't go up to that cotton pick and stand. Oh, this guy says, you know, I'm free in Christ. That's right, but not to commit suicide. I'm made of the same stuff that you are. And if you can go up to this stuff and you're not attracted, you got another problem. Come see me. I'll talk to you about that one. You're going to have to avoid it like the plague. And when you see this type of thing, you move in the opposite direction. That's why I can't afford the luxury a lot of this garbage my students get into. And they keep coming and say, boy, prophet, I want to be a man of God. Really? Come on. Yeah, I early to cut it out. You read that stuff? You watch that stuff? Don't give me that jazz. My friend, you cannot fill your mind with garbage and become a man or a woman of righteousness. There's no way. You're going to have to go experience the renewing of the mind. Romans 12, 2. And you keep filling it with a different diet. And it sensitizes you to the word. Fourth. Oh, yeah, this is worth the whole price of the conference. Practice. Now, my friends, you can't be consciously applying everything, but you can be consciously applying something. For example, if I ask you right now, just came right down in front of your table and said, what are you trusting God for today? What would you tell me? Well, most of us would rummage around and try to come up with some answer. But if you were really honest with me, you'd probably say, well, Prof, to be honest with you, nothing. That's right. See, this is how I finally got into this process of spending an hour in the Word every day. For the simple reason that when I walk out of that room, I walk out to trust God for something very specific today. Let me give you an illustration. Philippians 2.14. Do all things without murmurings and disputing. Isn't that a lovely verse? You all quote it? <laughs> that's great. So that's the verse I had Wednesday morning. I was flying to Oklahoma City every Wednesday night on Branagh, world's largest unscheduled airline. <laughs> Thirteen weeks in a row, twelve of them late. Fantastic. So this night, it's my girl's birthday. She's home from college. I said, sweetheart, I'm coming home, gal, and we're going to celebrate. We're going to have ourselves a ball. Great, Dad. I'll be out there to meet you. Good boy. So I go up and I unload the pearls on these dear people. Oh, man, I was speaking way beyond myself. <laughs> you ever get this experience sometimes, you know, man, the Lord is so used and you feel like stopping around and saying, who are you up there? <laughs> oh, 
boy, oh boy, I hope this is recorded. I need this. Just the insight's coming to you right on your feet. Man, people just hang on to everything you have. You know, man, boy, take off out to the airport. Brother drops me off. Great. Walk up to the man, smile on him. <laughs> Flight 179. Well, he says, uh, Stendrix, I hate to tell you, but uh, that plane hasn't left Chicago. It hasn't left Chicago. You gotta be kidding. No, sir, I'm really not. We got engine trouble up there. Boy, you know, all of a sudden, boom. And man, did I ever get eloquent. <laughs> Boy, you know, whoo, really share with them a reality. <laughs> so after I unloaded my pearls, I go sit down to stew in my juice. And the Lord says to me, Hendrix, I dare you to share your faith with them. And then the next thing is, do all things without murmurings and disputing. Boy, I pushed that verse down, but it kept coming back. That's the verse that Wednesday morning. Do all things, all things, including flying Branagh, without murmurings and disputing. So I finally screwed up enough courage to do, I think, the hardest thing I had to do. And I went up and I apologized to him. I said, my friend, I am very sorry for what I said to you. I said, I really want you to forgive me. I said, in the first place, I'm a Christian. And that's totally incompatible with my convictions, my commitment. And in the second place, I'm a minister, and that's totally out of bounds. So I'm awfully sorry. And I want you to know I need your forgiveness. And that guy broke out into the sweetest smile you've ever seen. He leaned across the counter and said, that's okay, man. I'm a Christian, too. <laughs> he said, in fact, that's the only reason I can stand behind this counter and take all of this guff. He <laughs> and I have become the closest friends. I've had dinner in his home so many times, and we've just, we just developed a friendship like this. But, you know, see, that's, that's practice. Now, see, I can, you know, I can unload all of the goodies. But do all things without murmuring. See, where does sovereignty come in when you walk out to catch a plane and it's two and a half hours late and you're missing the meeting where you're supposed to give the great big spiritual message? So you, you think God is biting his fingernails over how this is going to come out? And I find, my friends, that there are two things that a person needs to grow spiritual. He needs food and he needs exercise. And if you get too much of one or the other, you're in hot water. If you give him too much food, he becomes spiritually obese. If you give him too much exercise, he develops a severe case of vitamin deficiency. Food, it's exercise. Now what I'd like to take is this philosophy of approach, of observing, interpreting, and applying. And tomorrow, show you how to apply it in one specific method of approach to the scriptures. And I want to give you an assignment. And I got it direct from the top man who said, you have my permission to give assignments. So... I'm taking the prerogative. This is what I want you to do between now and tomorrow morning. I want you to read the book of Jonah through three times. Each time at one sitting. Please hear the instruction. Read the book of Jonah through each time at one sitting. And this is what I want you to do. Read the book through. And after you have read it through once, at one sitting, then I want you to write down all of the impressions and the overall observations that reading that book produced in your mind. 
I don't care if they are right or if they are wrong. I want you to write them down just as they come to you. I am impressed that this is a book of... Boom. Then I want you to put some time in between. Now, this is very crucial to the process. I'm not going to explain to you why now, that it would only fog you out. I'll show you why later, after you've experienced it. Put some time in between, and then get your second reading. And add some more impressions and observations. And then your third reading. And write your impressions and your observations. But put some time between each of these readings. So, for example, this afternoon, you may do it during your rest period. You may get some opportunity before supper or right after supper, maybe before you go to bed or the first thing in the morning. Yes, sir. Yeah, this might be a good thing to look for specifically. Or, you know, you can't read a book and come away without thinking something about the book. And what I'd like you to write is, what, you know, what impressions did that book make upon you? It may be in those areas. That might be a good thing to look for. Yes? You mean read the whole book and then write your impressions? Right. Either as you read or at the end of it, whichever is helpful to you. Some people get so hung up by stuff.